This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Vladimir Putin is not someone you can dig up a lot of stuff on. You have to go on, on what he gives you. And, um, and I actually find it in some ways more important and more informative to analyze what people tell you about themselves than to try to find out what they don't tell you. That's Masha Gessen the journalist, LGBTQ plus activist, and Russian dissident who has covered and written about Russian President Vladimir Putin for decades. Putin is often referred to as all-powerful, a masterful villain who's the guy behind all of the doors. In 2017, he became the longest-serving leader of Russia since Joseph Stalin, and Putin could be in charge of Russia for the next few decades. It's kind of unbelievable that we don't really know the story of one of the most powerful people in the world. So, who is Vladimir Putin? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is? The podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the stories of people who have it. Like Masha Gessen said, not much is known about Putin's past besides what he himself has told us. So let's start with the place he was born. He was born in 1952 in Leningrad. And it's really important and really hard to imagine what Leningrad was like in 1952. So we're seven years out from the end of World War II. And what happened in Leningrad during World War II is probably still one of the most significant and difficult to sort of imagine traumatic events of, you know, of a century that was rich in shocking traumatic events. During the war, Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, underwent a level of suffering that's difficult to even comprehend. The city was under siege for 900 days. And more than a million people died, mostly of starvation, combined with the extreme cold of that winter. The city just, you know, imagine, imagine being in your home, deprived of food, deprived of an ability to heat it, and under the constant threat of being shelled for nearly three years. Right? There was virtually no way to get out of the city and there was no way to bring supplies into the city. So it was this extremely long, extremely frightening period of, of, of just despair. And then, unlike most events that happen in wars, right, people didn't get to go home from that. They were already home. The most horrible thing that had ever happened to them, seeing their loved ones die, you know, starve to death, seeing their entire environment disintegrate, seeing people resort to, you know, eating rats um, and probably each other. All of that happened right where they lived and continued to live. Nearly 27 million Soviets died during the war, and the country was devastated. A quarter of the nation's economy disappeared, and the war was followed by famine, disease, and political purges. Stalin, a brutal dictator, was in charge, and a month before little Vladimir was born, Stalin had accused several of his doctors of plotting to kill him in what was later debunked as an anti-Semitic conspiracy. This is the world Putin was born into. Putin's parents were very, very unusual by the standards of the time. They were in their 40s when he was born, which is like ancient by Russian standards, but also it's, it's amazing that they had lived through the siege and were able to have him, that has given birth to some theories that he was actually adopted, because it's so hard to imagine that a baby could have been born to, to a couple in their 40s after the siege. His father was injured and, and disabled, 
And they're also very, very poor. They didn't have much time for him. He mostly grew up sort of in the courtyard with other boys, pretty standard. So they lived in a communal apartment. They had one room for the whole family. There was a wood-burning stove in the middle of this room. One room for the entire family in a city recovering from three years of siege and famine. So it's not hard to understand why a young Putin would admire Soviet strongmen. Vladimir Putin grew up idolizing the secret police. He was kind of a secret police nerd. He had the miniature bust of the founder of the Foreign Intelligence Service on his desk when he was a kid. And this is an obscure name. Now I'm, I, can't even, I can't even recall it off the top of my head. Not somebody that you normally would have heard of, right? It's like you have to be, to be at a high level of nerddom to know who this man was. So what is the KGB? The KGB was the Soviet secret police. It was a vast intelligence agency, which included foreign intelligence, domestic intelligence, all kinds of surveillance. And it was the, the second center of power, I would say on par with the Communist Party, which was the one party that ruled in the Soviet Union. It served to sort of balance the, the, the power of the Communist Party, but it also in many ways ran the country. It had its tentacles in absolutely everything. There was a KGB officer at every workplace, you know, looking after things quite officially. Right? It seems pretty incredible that somebody coming from such poverty managed to get an education, but Putin did it. He transforms from grade school thug, in Gessen's words, to a goal-directed and hard-working adolescent. Supposedly, it was martial arts, judo specifically. Anyway, an 18-year-old Putin enrolls at Leningrad State University in 1970. Five years later, in 1975, the 23-year-old Putin realizes his childhood dream and joins the KGB. So he joins the KGB. He really wants to be an agent. Yeah, so most of what the KGB is doing is going after dissidents in the Soviet Union. But Putin doesn't want to do that. He wants to um, go abroad and he wants to be a secret agent. He wants to be a spy in a Western country. That's, that's the most desirable career in the KGB. And he doesn't quite seem to have the talent or the connections or, or the brilliance to, to do this. Putin begins working his way up the KGB hierarchy and lands a job in Dresden in what was then communist East Germany. You're going to hear some background noise. We're taping remotely due to the pandemic, so apologies in advance. The experience of living in Dresden, I think, is pretty humiliating for him and his wife. And, and then they have two little girls by the time they leave Germany because they see that even in East Germany, people lived materially so much better than they did in the Soviet Union. They had bigger apartments, they had better furniture, they had better food, they didn't have to stand in line because there were constant shortages. And so that's, you know, the, the, it, it's, it seems clear that for at least a while while he was stationed in Germany, Putin was actually quite depressed. I don't, you know, I can't tell you why he was depressed, whether it was because of the humiliation of seeing that they were um, less than the East Germans, whether it was because his job was so meaningless or whether it was something else. But it's kind of a sad picture of him living in Dresden. Wow, I'm depressed too. Maybe I could one day be president. Also, much like Putin, my country is falling apart around me. And then, of course, the most important events in Soviet history happen while he's away. Soviet Union suddenly transforms. Mikhail Gorbachev comes into office in 1986 and announces vast reforms, vastness and perestroika, so openness and restructuring of the entire Soviet system. Once he starts trying to restructure it, it all comes tumbling down. But it comes tumbling down to the great joy and excitement of most of the Soviet people who are exhilarated by this new openness, who are exhilarated by finding out new information and by you know, looking out at the world with a completely different attitude. But Putin is not part of that 
incredible sort of groundswell of, of excitement. He's in East Germany being a kind of sort of spy, serving his country while his country starts falling apart. And the culmination of that for him, as he tells the story, now we're back to the way he tells the story, is that there are huge demonstrations in Dresden as they're, you know, during the peaceful revolutions all over Eastern Central Europe, there are these enormous demonstrations in Dresden. At one point, people surround this little building where KGB um, agents work in Dresden. Yeah, pro-democracy protesters probably weren't too happy with the Soviet secret police who'd been terrorizing them for decades. And Putin comes out onto the porch and tells them that he's a translator there. And he's terrified that they're going to storm the building and, and find out that it's KGB and, and read the, the documents that they have there. So according to how Putin tells it, the German fluent Putin is able to hold off the hordes. Putin says in Russian, this is a translation, the Germans had attacked their own security ministry. That was their internal business. But we were not their internal business. We were in serious danger. We had documents there. Nobody stirred a finger to protect us. So he calls up a nearby Soviet military station and gets a less than optimal response. We can't do anything without orders from Moscow. Moscow is silent. That stung. Putin later said in an interview, I got a feeling that at the time, the country no longer existed. And so he feels profoundly betrayed by this country that he he's out there representing and defending and spying for. And the country couldn't care less what, what happens to him and whether you know these um, precious documents are going to be seized by what he perceives as an angry mob. And so he goes back into this building and he spends all night burning documents until the, 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 the stove that he's using to burn them cracks from the heat. And then soon after that, his wife and, and daughters and he returned to Leningrad in their little car with a used washing machine as kind of their trophy that they're taking back to the Soviet Union. It's a very humiliating, very disheartening end to what he was hoping would be his spying career. And then something huge happens. Repeating once again our top story, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has been removed from power and there are tanks now in the streets of Moscow. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time and an era comes to an end. The Soviet Union collapses. Putin, now nearly 40, had dedicated himself to a state that no longer existed. But the KGB still existed. So when, when he comes back from, from East Germany, at first his family and he are living with his parents in one room in a two-room apartment. The state was just collapsing, but it was also encouraging everybody to, to trade, to, 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 to make money, and to become self-sufficient. And KGB agents suddenly become incredibly valuable personnel because at least they've been abroad, at least they have an idea of how the West works or the world outside the Soviet Union works. And so he gets one of those classic jobs, uh, classic at that time for a KGB agent, and, um, and immediately goes into this kind of wealth accumulation stage, in which I think he has persisted for now more than 30 years. At the time, Michael McFall, who would one day be America's ambassador to the Russian Federation, was in St. Petersburg. Uh, I first met Vladimir Putin in the spring of 1991. Um, he was at the time the uh, deputy mayor for international relations, uh, international contacts for the mayor of St. Petersburg at the time, Anatoly Sobchak. And I was working for an American non-governmental organization called the National Democratic Institute. And our job at the time, I was living in the Soviet Union, was to promote democratic institutions. Um, and we ironically, uh, now that I know the, the longer history of Mr. Putin, but we were there in St. Petersburg uh, to run some rather boring seminars on how 
budgets, city budgets, uh, are constructed in a democratic way. Uh, and he was the liaison to our seminar series. In fact, manipulating budgets and assets is Putin's path to power. But Putin also showcased one of his other skills. He didn't really stick out from the crowd. Here's Michael McFall. And was the meeting memorable at all, or did you think of him as uh, kind of a run-of-the-mill bureaucrat? Uh, no, I would not have uh, remembered him had he not been uh, named uh, first as prime minister and then acting president and president. Uh, did not make a big impression at all. According to Putin's official biography, he resigned from the KGB in 1991 to enter non-spy politics. But did he really retire? I spoke with Catherine Belton, who wrote Putin People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West, and served as Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. So Putin didn't quite retire in 91. And so he actually, he was serving as deputy mayor to Anatoly Sobchak, who was uh, the mayor of St. Petersburg and a kind of uh, leading Democrat of the era. But Putin was was still in the shadows as, as, as a member of the KGB. And according to one former ally, he actually didn't resign from the KGB until uh, 93, uh, by which time he'd really become entrenched as an essential aid to the liberal and democratic leader of St. Petersburg. Remember, communism is collapsing and something different is emerging. Nobody knows what that something will look like. And whether Putin is an opportunist or simply trying to establish himself in the new order of things is an open question. Probably it's a bit of both. Here's Masha Gessen. I think like many Soviet people, he... Um He's very good at reading signals and knowing which way the wind is blowing. He is clearly very um, careful to hedge his bets. He serves his country. His country is whatever the state is. If it's communist hardliners, KGB generals, then he serves them. If it's if it's someone else. You know, then he serves them. Um, there's no, I mean, there's no core principle anywhere in that man. Russia of the 1990s was a different world from the Leningrad of the 1950s, where Putin had been born into fairly abject poverty. Everything was in play. When we're back, we're going to look at how Putin built power during this chaotic time after literally moving back in with his parents at 40. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's the 1990s. The Soviet Union has collapsed and Russia is opening up. The transition to democracy wasn't easy and there was more famine and a lot of economic instability. I wanted to hear about it from somebody who lived it. So I spoke to Nadia Tolokonevoka. You've probably heard of her. Hi, I'm Nadia and I'm a founder of a feminist collective Pussy Red. I spent two years in jail because of a feminist performance uh, in Cathedral of Christ the Savior. Nadia was born in 1989, the same year as Taylor Swift. Yes, it was a challenging time economically. My parents were struggling to provide food on our table. But at the same time, it was thriving time for Russian culture because there were no, um, almost no censorship at the time, as I remember it. I felt like, <laughs> as a kid, I was waiting to see in the news that Russia will be part of the European Union, you know? And that's, that's what a lot of Russians really want to. Um, and especially younger Russians, they, they don't see uh, this dream of nationalist empire state um, as attractive as Putin does. Russia was changing. But remember, Putin is a KGB man for life, navigating a new world. He gets a job with a former professor, Anatoly Sobchak, a major advocate for Russian democracy. When Boris Yeltsin is elected president, 
Sobchak is mayor of Leningrad, which he renames St. Petersburg. Remember, kids, college networking is important. Here's Masha Gessen. One of the professors from the university, from the law school, actually, Anatoly Sobchak, is elected mayor of Leningrad, democratically elected. This is amazing. And he also needs a KGB agent on hand. The KGB is still incredibly powerful. And so Sobchak makes this calculated choice that since somebody was go is going to be infiltrating his staff and spying on him anyway, he may as well handpick this person. And he picks Putin. But the KGB is kind of antithetical to democracy. Here's Nadia. Um, for, for, many, for many people who wanted to build democracy in Russia, it was obvious that you can't really build a functional democracy with a person who's coming from KGB. Because there is no such a thing as ex-KGB agent. If you, if you served as a KGB agent for a while, then um, you, you'll stay um, KGB agent forever. Working for Sobchak, Putin is able to make use of his KGB connections to really begin to build serious power. Meanwhile, Russia's transition to democracy and to capitalism is pretty rocky. Yet again, famine, something Putin saw up close as a kid in the 50s. Now, all of these shortages that have plagued the Soviet economy they just become catastrophic. And the, uh, the state is actually afraid that there's going to be actual famine in, in various places. And so they allow cities to use what's called strategic reserves. It gets a little bit complicated, but let me see if I can break it down. Basically, they're like stores of, of, of things that are thought of as in demand in the West that exist in various locations. And the Central Committee tells different cities that they can take their strategic reserves and sell them abroad or trade them abroad or whatever, as long as they can get food into the mouths of the people who live there and prevent famine. And Putin uh, is allowed to take strategic reserves of timber that are in Leningrad and trade them. He takes, uh, he intentionally enters into bad contracts so that the timber disappears uh, to the tune of about $100,000, but the food never comes. And nobody can be held accountable because the contracts that he entered into are unenforceable. We don't know how much of that money he pocketed, but probably a lot, right? And of course, by the standards of, of contemporary Russian corruption, $100,000 is five minutes work. But at the time, it was a staggering amount of money. I mean, you could buy many apartments and lots of cars and just like enter into the super wealthy class with $100,000. It was a total transformation. It's like, it's like winning, you know, one of the biggest lotteries in the United States in terms of like the, 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 um, the life-changing nature of that sum of money that he stole from the city that he supposedly served when the city was on the verge of famine. Catherine Belton believes that, in fact, Putin was beginning to build wealth and power utilizing KGB networks. The story was originally unearthed by a former geologist turned politician, Marina Salier. This uh, scheme that was uncovered by uh, Marina Salier, who was also another kind of uh, leading Democrat of St. Petersburg at the time. Uh, she was a doughty former geologist and she'd really, uh, really wanted to get to the bottom of these schemes that she'd uncovered, uh, which appeared to have siphoned hundreds of millions of dollars worth of raw materials into the hands of a small bunch of obscure companies, all of whom seem to be run by uh, Putin's closest cronies. And this was a time when uh, St. Petersburg was kind of reeling from the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of communism. The new government of Russia, Yeltsin's new uh, liberal democratic government, had just uh, overnight in January 1992 a freed press 
prices, which used to be fixed under the Soviet planned economy. And really, the economy couldn't cope with such sweeping change. So the, all the supply chains of, of food distribution were broken and, and the shelves were empty. And Putin had been charged with uh, kind of dealing with that by uh, allowing uh, sort of some companies to gain access to licenses to export raw materials in exchange for food supplies. But what had in fact had happened was that Putin had doled out the licenses to companies no one had ever heard of before. And they seemed to have disappeared with the proceeds because none of the food ever turned up. Putin begins to distribute lucrative contracts to KGB associates as the city he's supposed to be serving is at risk of famine. So Salier was was most upset about all of this. Um, and it looked like it's one of the really first real indications of, of Putin's uh, corruption. And everyone had really thought that perhaps uh, his 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 friends in who were running these these crony companies had just pocketed the proceeds for themselves. Or in fact, maybe Putin had run away with the cash. But I actually, in the course of my research, I also found the was a little bit more to it than that. Um, that in fact, many of these uh, crony companies that he was handing the licenses to had their roots in uh, Soviet era KGB run joint ventures of, of the 80s that were some of the first ventures set up by the KGB as, as the Soviet economy began to move to the market. And what I found when I interviewed a former KGB operator who worked with Putin on these schemes was that, in fact, they'd set them up as a way uh, to maintain some of the KGB influence networks of the 80s, that they needed a way to sort of create a slush fund that would pay off and kind of funnel cash into sort of the KGB-linked companies abroad. So it was a kind of very early sort of uh, 90s era uh, smuggling scheme. This is literally how Putin built power, distributing massive assets to his old KGB buddies while working for one of Russia's leading democratic reformers. What Salier had uncovered in the early 90s in the, these oil for food barter schemes was a very early prototype of how Putin was to run the country, i.e. He he'd been parceling out assets to a network of, of cronies, uh, to allies that he could trust. And that's what essentially what he did on a federal scale with the Russian economy. He parceled out the country's most strategic cash flows to his own trusted guys from the KGB and he wanted to do so because uh, he felt well if anyone was operating outside of his control then he could use the billions of dollars of oil wealth or metals wealth against him they could use those funds to buy up politicians in parliament or seek to influence through other means so he began taking over everything I mean it it's not quite correct to call them an oligarchy because, as I say, they're not, they're not the ones who are dictating their will to Putin's Kremlin. It's rather uh, Putin uh, sort of dictating his will to them because all, they all have to follow his orders. Marina Salier would later warn that Putin could become president of a corrupt oligarchy. Here's Michael McFall. Uh, well, I knew Marina. Uh, back in these days that we're talking about. I didn't know her well, but I met her several times. Um, uh, I do remember that this was uh, uh, attributed to her, that comment. Um, and of course, that is what happened. Um, uh, you know, I think there were two phases to it. The, the first phase was the 90s when uh, business people closely connected to Yeltsin uh, cashed in on those connections to take control of some of the, the richest, richest assets that were privatized in the 1990s. Um, but then there was a big reordering and a big new redistribution of these property rights in the Putin era. And, and in the Putin era, you had the fusing of oligarchs and former KGB officials. Uh, so today, a lot of intelligence officers are the ones that now run the most uh, lucrative companies 
uh, in Russia. Putin would replace one set of oligarchs, Yeltsin's oligarchs, with another, a set which he controlled. Once Putin's men had control of most of the country's economy, uh, most of its strategic wealth, uh, it, he, they could sort of give orders and use this the country's strategic cash flows not to sort of create wealth or kind of or innovate or create a strong economy, but they'd sort of use it to siphon off cash flows to preserve their own power uh, within Russia and also to project it abroad. They could use it for influence operations abroad like they did in uh, Soviet times, only now they had kind of, now that they'd made the transition to uh, a market economy, they had a lot more cash at their command. Putin is able to effectively utilize these KGB networks to secure more and more powerful and lucrative positions for himself. By the late 1990s, he's really in the mix. With Putin in St. Petersburg, where he was the deputy mayor, uh, well, he was still kind of uh, very much kind of working with his old KGB cohort. Uh, you know, he was he was still incredibly influential, and he was able to kind of build on that influence uh, after he moved to Moscow in '96, where he somehow engineered a very rapid rise through the Kremlin, and he did so really through being very unassuming. Uh, he seemed very unambitious, and this was kind of quite uh, surprising for the politics of that era when it was a real kind of den of vipers. So to find somebody uh, who was seemed so unambitious was like a breath of fresh air. Catherine Belton believes that Putin's rise to power was in part orchestrated by the KGB, which had never really disappeared. Boris Yeltsin, Russia's first democratically elected president, had fallen out of favor. Russian people were tired of the chaos, and the ongoing economic collapse had taken a serious toll. What's more, Yeltsin and his family were afraid they'd be prosecuted for alleged corruption. This is a pivotal moment in Putin's rise to power. Really, the moment when the KGB was able to to retake power came uh, after the August 98 financial crisis. Putin was kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And uh, in a, so that, in a way, was the kind of the planned part of his rise to power. And as one of his former KGB allies told me, it's sort of like the Yeltsin family really actually didn't have a choice. They had to find a way to compromise with the security services who'd very much remained a big force to be, be reckoned with and there wasn't much choice. They had to hand over power to one of their number. Perhaps it was a bit of coincidence that it, it turned out to be Putin, but um, whatever, whichever way you turn it, it was always going to be somebody from the KGB. Never underestimate the power of fear. Here's Masha Gessen. So there are a couple of close allies of Yeltsin who still have access to him. He's, he's become very isolated. So it's really just a couple of people. And they are bringing candidates to him. And I think they're really power drunk. They believe that they can be kingmakers. And because they can be kingmakers, they can also manage whoever comes after Yeltsin. So they see this, this little gray bureaucrat from the KGB as, as what he is, you know, which is just not much. But also they see him as really malleable. He's going to owe this incredible opportunity to them. Like who could have imagined that a guy like that would become president? And so he's just going to do whatever they tell him. They clearly have no understanding of how power works. But you, after listening to one and a half seasons of Who Is, have an informed understanding of how power works. Yeltsin's goal is to have somebody who is going to guarantee him immunity after he leaves office. But Putin turns out to be the guy. And very quickly, Yeltsin hands basically Russia over to, to Putin by resigning early in such a way that Putin is sure to win a hastily called election. In 10 years, Putin has gone from moving back in with his parents at 40 to running a global superpower. We'll be back after this. Hey. 
It's a new millennium, and Putin is in charge of Russia. Here's some early American press about the new Russian president. In our earlier segment, uh, one of our callers uh, took me to task for how I pronounced the new Putin. leader's name. Yes. Putin. For the uninitiated, Putin is a Quebecois, French-Canadian, dish of French fries, gravy, and cheese curds. But anyway, in the early 2000s, Putin gets lucky. Here's Michael McFall. You know, it's easy to destroy regimes. It's hard to build new ones. Uh, and in Russia, it was a triple challenge in that they had to build democracy uh, out of the, the rubble of communism. They had to try to build a market economy out of the rubble of a command economy. And they had to try to build uh, an independent Russian country, Russian state, out of the collapse of the Soviet empire. Uh, and so to do all of those three things together meant a lot of hardship in the 1990s. A very deep economic depression uh, occurred in Russia in the 1990s. And as a result of that, uh, Putin, when he was named president by uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin, he took advantage of that to say, you know, I want to build uh, a state with more order and stability and law and order. Uh, and he took over right as Russia was beginning to uh, recover uh, from that uh, the 90s economic depression. And so it was the confluence of those two events, just the luck that Putin had to arrive right when the economy was growing. And that gave him the kind of legitimacy to build the autocracy that he's built uh, to this day. Don't forget the famine we talked about earlier. For many Russians, that wasn't the distant past. That was recent history. Here's Nadia again. My dad is um, pretty aware politically, and uh, he started to give me political magazines to read when I was a little girl. So I remember time before Putin when um, when it was more free, and and I do remember the change in. Um, an amount of censorship that like all of a sudden started to creep in after Putin came to power. Uh, I remember his attacks on people who would criticize him on media, on TV channels, on uh, and then on um, on influential um, business people like uh, Khodorkovsky. Remember when we talked about how Putin was replacing one set of oligarchs with another? One of the people being replaced was Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who had hit a big on Siberian oil fields he'd obtained during the privatization of formerly state-owned assets in the 1990s. In 2003, he was arrested, stripped of his wealth, and imprisoned. Putin was consolidating power and making it clear that he meant business. Another time was my experience of trying to be a journalist. I was uh, 14 years old, and it was 2004. I've decided that I want to grow up and be a journalist. So I needed to write a couple of articles to prove uh, to university that I can actually be a journalist. And uh, my article, um, my topic of choice was environment. In my home city, Norilsk, so one of the northeast city and most polluted cities on earth, the snow is literally black in my city. It's so heavily polluted. And um, it was obvious to me that there should be a sort of investigation on why it's happening, why nobody is protesting, why um, why the owners of these factories cannot just uh, install filters to you know protect it from happening. And when I brought it to the newspaper, and they told me, "Hey, you understand better than we are. Like, I mean, you understand as as good as we do understand why this article cannot be published." And as a 14 years old, I did not really understand it. But this is a phrase that um, this is really typical for modern autocracies. You understand it. And as a citizen of autocratic state, you're supposed to understand unwritten rules because on paper, the Jure, we still have democracy. We still have free elections. And that's what Putin claims. That's what he tells you when he meets Westerners. But in fact, everyone who lives inside Russia, they should understand that there, there are certain topics that you cannot talk about. And for example, you cannot um, question financial interests um, in um, 
in the city you live in. You cannot uh, question um, oligarchs who neglect um, ecological standards and pollute your rivers, and pollute your air and snow. So yeah, that was another sign. At the same time, quality of life was rising, and after so many years of hardship, many people seemed ready to look the other way. The rising oil prices really kind of、uh, allowed everyone to sort of close their eyes in a way to what the Putin regime was up to. You know, I think after such kind of tumult and, and instability of the Yeltsin years, people were really quite content. They understood,、uh, to some degree.、Uh, Putin's corruption, i.e., that he was kind of taking out the oligarchs and taking over chunks of the economy, but they didn't really care as long as as long as their incomes were rising too. It wasn't just oil prices. There were major terrorist attacks in Russia. Hundreds of people were killed in terrible apartment bombings, people's homes, and a breakaway republic, Chechnya, was blamed. Chechnya is majority Muslim, and according to the Independent. Russia had planned to invade Chechnya months before the attacks. It's even possible that the apartment bombings were actual false flags, which Putin was able to use to his advantage. At the time, a few brave reporters like Anna Polakovskaya were watching. Here's Catherine Belton. Uh, so Politkovskaya was a very uh, great uh, crusading uh, uh, corruption reporter who did、uh, an awful lot to kind of investigate、uh, the misdoings of the regime of Chechnya.、Um, I mean, Putin came to power、uh, fighting against an insurgency by Chechen rebels who he claimed had、uh, were behind a series of apartment bombings in、uh, Moscow, which. Left hundreds dead, though the evidence perhaps points to his own security services as、uh, being behind those apartment bombings and sort of allowing him to launch a very、uh, vic- quick, victorious war in Chechnya, which kind of、uh, really kind of galvanized popular support for Putin after years of weakness under Yeltsin. Putin was carpet bombing、uh, Chechnya and really with. Little regard for civilian life, but、uh, both basically most of the population、uh, of Russia cheered, cheered, cheered him on in this because they were so horrified by the apartment bombings.、Uh, but after a while,、uh, after most of Chechnya had been devastated by the bombings, Putin was able to install his own man as the leader of Chechnya, and this was a guy called Ramzan Kadyrov, who really did、uh, follow closely Putin's orders. But he was also a strong man who led a very、uh, brutal regime. And Anna Politkovskaya was、uh, was one of the few brave Russian journalists who really uncovered、uh, some of the kidnappings that Kadyrov、uh, was leading. And you know, and and really, she kind of held up、uh, the she held up his regime to 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 truth. And she uncovered a great deal about、uh, what Kadyrov had been been up to. And obviously, this crossed too many paths, and、uh, and she wound up shot on the day of Putin's birthday,、uh, and、uh, she was shot dead in the, as she was entering her stairwell、uh, in her Moscow apartment. And as I was told by one、uh, Putin associate, that、uh, some of his allies liked to offer up、uh, gifts to him in the form of the killing of of some of his enemies. So it very much looks like that's what happened to to Politkovskaya. In 2010, a manifesto is released. Putin must go. I'm going to read some of it. We state that the socio-political construction that is killing Russia and has now bound the citizens of our country has one architect, one custodian, and one guardian. His name is Vladimir Putin. We declare that no essential reforms can be carried out in Russia today. As long as Putin controls real power in the country, ridding ourselves of Putinism is the first obligatory step on the path to a new free Russia. Here's Nadia from Pussy Riot. In October of 2011, Putin has announced that he's going to be president for the third time, and it was quite obvious that、um, our freedoms will continue to shrink if Putin will become president for the third time.
So um, in order to confront all of that, uh, we've decided to form Pussy Red and just go to the streets and scream as loud as we can to activate our fellow citizens to go against Putin. I didn't want to, like, I had never planned to go to jail. Like, who wants to go to jail? Nobody wants to go to jail. I just wanted to make protest art. And before 2012, Russia was um, more free. We, we did our actions and we never actually thought that we'll end up in jail. And, well, there were some people who went to jail, um, but, but you never believe that it will happen with you. Um, since 2012, uh, things are getting worse. Um, our freedoms are really, really um, um, shrinking. This is when mass protests against Putin started popping up. The BBC covered what was then the biggest protests in Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. For 12 years, many people in Russia have been, able, have been happy to put politics on the back burner, as it were. They've wanted to stabilize their lives, buy new cars, uh, start to live like other people in Europe. But they've also traveled the world, seen how other people live in the world. They've become much better connected through the internet, through social networking sites. And they've started to want to have more control again over their country. And that, for many people, was what these elections were about. And then they felt that they'd been cheated. And so this is in many ways a political reawakening for people in Russia and also a political awakening for a new generation. Here's Michael McFall. In academia and, and in policy circles too, by the way, but there is a big debate about why do some countries uh, become democratic? Why are some countries autocratic? Uh, and the debate with respect to Russia Oftentimes, history is invoked, culture is invoked, uh, the Russian people like a strong hand, uh, and most certainly for most of Russian history, uh, well before the Soviet Union, of course, and, and now after, uh, that country has been ruled by dictators, uh, be they Putin today or the Communist Party in the 20th century or czars in the 19th and 18th and 17th centuries. So if you're just looking at history over the course of several hundred years, and you were going to make a prediction about how Russia will be uh, ruled next year based on your prior experience, you would say it's a likely prediction that it'll be ruled in an autocratic way the next year. Um, but I think it's important for people to remember that there was a democratic breakthrough, that the Soviet Union did collapse, uh, and it didn't collapse because of uh, Ronald Reagan and Star Wars and uh, what we did. That's a giant mess. It collapsed because Russians and Ukrainians, by the way, and Estonians and, and Poles and Hungarians, but people in the communist world rose up and demanded uh, that uh, their voices be heard and that there be democratic uh, change in those countries. And I was you know, we started with uh, that I'd lived in Leningrad in 1983, but the last time I studied in the Soviet Union was the year 1990-1991. Uh, that year I was in at Moscow State University, and that was the year that the, these democratic forces rose up uh, and destroyed the Soviet Union and that communist regime. And I think it's important for people to remember that it was Russians that did that. So when you hear that Russians all love dictators and they all love Putin, uh, I think it's important to remember that there are other times in history where Russia was more democratic and they were more democratic, not because of outsiders, but because of what Russians did. Yeah, Russians don't want autocracy. Nobody does. And Russians like Nadia from Pussy Riot were fighting it in the streets. But I want to get back to Putin. If Nadia had the opportunity to sit down with him, what would she say? Well, I find this question uh, sad and funny at the same time because you don't really sit with a um, murderer of your friends, don't you? Um, and I would reject uh, this offer if it is to come because I think uh, that Putin, uh, Putin has to be in jail. He, he doesn't 
he doesn't have to sit in front of me drinking coffee because he committed lots of crimes and he poisoned and he murdered my colleagues and friends. Part of what this show is about is getting to some kind of interiority on our subjects, some piece of who they really are. And Masha Gessen did meet Putin in 2012, and the story is wild. At the time, I was editor of a popular science magazine in, in Russia, which is actually the, the biggest um, circulation, the high circulation uh, magazine in the country. And Putin could, had quite a soft spot for it. He really liked the magazine. And he liked it so much that he really wanted to be in it. It's a long story, but Gessen gets an invitation to the Kremlin. Um, he had this very weird conversation with me uh, that began with his saying, I like kitties and puppies and little animals. Uh, which was not a joke. It was his way of saying that he really like is serious about his nature conservation that he is sincere. And, um, and he was, you know, he was like that off beat, that off tune in his entire effort to have like a lovely, friendly conversation with me. Putin at this point is notorious, widely criticized for the corruption and brutality of his regime. I had been researching him for years at that point. And so I had a pretty clear idea that he was a very uneducated, untalented, uncurious, you know, uninteresting and uninterested guy who accidentally ended up in this chair, uh, this, this like amazing chair that creates a magic and an aura and a sense of power all in its own, like the president's chair. And um, and I was pretty sure that this uh, this was who he was, but. It, it felt like going to meet a character that I had made up. I mean, in the sense that obviously he was a real person, but when you write a book about somebody, it's always like writing a novel, right? It's always an imaginary person. And so part of me wanted him to be exactly as I had written him. And part of me wanted him to be more interesting. And part of me even kind of wanted to be seduced because so many people that I had talked to who met him for the first time when he first had power, were seduced by him. And, um, and I suspected that it was the power that they found so seductive, but I couldn't know for sure. So I thought, what if, what if there's like some magic? What if there's some incredible charm? So I thought, you know, maybe I will feel like I'm in the presence of greatness or something. But there was like nothing. There was no there there. So... So it was, it, was, it was confirmed that he was just the person that I had written in the book, but it was also really disappointing because I, I was kind of hoping for more. Eight years later, a lot has happened. Putin's alleged sphere of influence is enormous, and he's one of several major geopolitical power players determining the course of history. Putin-style democracy, illiberal democracy, oligarchy, autocracy, seems to be spreading. Why does Putin, a hard-luck kid turned KGB operative, seem so easily able to manipulate this historical moment? Why is Putinism spreading? Here's Catherine Belton. The style of autocracy that, that Putin has engineered in Russia is spreading because uh, I think Putin uh, has very ably been able to exacerbate existing weaknesses in the Western system. So, I mean, obviously, uh, Putin has not been able to sort of create these autocracies by himself. But what he has been able to manipulate is a kind of the 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 weaknesses of 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 the of the Western system, the inequality of society, um, in particular, sort of after the 2008 financial crisis which of course left many uh, by the wayside uh, after the, the banking collapses and, and so on and, and the regimes of austerity that many uh, Western economies began to impose. Uh, so I think Putin has been able to sort of engineer a lot of the kind of well, has really been able to kind of leverage the dissatisfaction in, in many uh, Western countries over 
growing social inequality. Uh, many of his security men, uh, the K his ex-KGB allies, profess uh, an ideology of trying to protect conservative values uh, across Europe and in the West. They're sort of be against abortion. They'll try to promote uh, Christian val values. And this really appeals to those who've perhaps been left by the wayside in globalization and particularly after the 2008 financial collapse which really did kind of hit uh, many countries pretty hard. Putin may be cynical but why wouldn't he be? So I think Putin has, has been very skilled in identifying and sort of leveraging weaknesses uh, in the way the West has, has been run. And to some degree, that's uh, due to the West's own uh, complacency. I think the West hasn't really been able to sort of properly identify uh, some of the threats. And it's also kind of the case of sort of ever since the Soviet uh, collapse, there was a really kind of a sort of a no-holds-barred capitalism in which the West thought, okay, we won the Cold War. Uh, and I think most people didn't act, see, see the need to act in a principled way anymore. And I think Putin could, could see this as well as he was uh, taking over Russia's own economy that most uh, Western companies didn't really, didn't really care about the way uh, Putin was taking over the country's economy. They just wanted a, a piece of the action themselves. They just wanted to join uh, the Kremlin in sort of taking a, a piece of the, the profit. So, I mean, you could you could say that the 2008 financial crisis was, was kind of a product of, of that sort of blind capitalism too. And, and I think Putin has been able to very well capitalize on that. And that's one of the reasons why we see this great rise of, of populist autocratic leaders uh, in many countries in Eastern Europe and unfortunately in more and more of Western Europe too. And not just Western Europe, but also the United States. However, even Putin's power won't last forever. He's facing a precarious future now, and we indeed we see that in in some of the recent actions, uh, most clearly in the poisoning by the Novichok nerve agent of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader. That's a sign of of Putin's growing insecurity. You really see the insecurity of the regime and the fact that there is a recognition in the Kremlin that they're almost kind of running out of tricks. And if there's another sharp downturn in oil prices, there could be a wave of bankruptcies and really then Putin could face a great deal more social unrest. It isn't easy to come to a conclusion on Putin, but today we've tried to give you a sense of who he is and where he comes from. And here's what we can say. As new generations come of age in Russia and the memory of the Soviet Union fades, Putin will face Russians who will demand reform, a new political reality, and a future without him. And what that future looks like will be decided by Russians, by the millions of people who call one of the world's most diverse and dynamic nations home. On the next episode of Who Is, we look inward at a conspiracy that alleges America's most powerful are actually members of a clandestine cabal of globetrotting pedophiles. But don't worry. If everything goes as planned, Trump will soon ship them all to Guantanamo Bay. It's QAnon, next Tuesday on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests, Catherine Belton, who previously served as the Moscow correspondent for the Financial Times. She's currently a special correspondent at Reuters and is the author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took On the West. Masha Gessen, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of many books, including The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin, and most recently, Surviving Autocracy. Michael McFall, who has taught at Stanford since 1995. McFall served five years in the Obama administration, which included several years as U.S. ambassador to the Russian Federation. His most recent book is From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. 
and Nadia Tolokonikova, a founder of feminist collective Pussy Riot. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm your host, Sean Morrow. Michael McDowell is our producer. Kinsey Clark and Laura Tillman are our associate producers. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earl. Ron Flats is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Adakuder. At Now This, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Mary Dijewski. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. Who Is, the podcast, season two. New episodes out every Tuesday. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have someone or something you think we should cover, email me, sm at nowthismedia.com.